Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Liv Haddon is a clarity guide, graphic designer, uninhibited dancer, the author of Get Your Joy On, Unleash Joy in Your Life, One Small Act at a Time, and the host of Self-Aware Millennial the podcast and community for people seeking a joyously authentic life. She is an award-winning fiction author and entrepreneur and has acquired a variety of skills and experiences that allow her to explore personal leadership on a deep and spiritual level. Liv's purpose and passion in life is to help others wake up to all of the magic in the world, especially the unique brand of magic you carry inside yourself. Today, we touch on a really interesting dynamic. What does it mean to feel black, but present white? Liv Haddon's journey through identity, trauma, self-actualization, and many other facets of her life, it's deeply layered, but the way she sifts through it is incredible. She's so well-spoken and just has a way with feelings unlike many others. I can assure you, you'll leave enlightened. So I just want to hear first how how you identify. Like we can go surface level, we can go deep, but if someone, if someone were to say, which is really how they should ask it instead of saying, what are you? They should ask, how do you identify? How do you see yourself? Yeah, so the timing of this interview is insanely interesting and nothing short of divinely timed because this is something that I've been consciously working with um, probably the last six or so months, maybe a little longer. Obviously, my identity has been built over the course of a lifetime, you know, 28 years of a lifetime so far, Um, but I ignored things. So I would say for comfortability's sake right now on the surface, I, you know, identify as a white lady because I look white and because that's what people see when they look at me. Um, I would say that's not how I feel. Like when I hear people talk about white women at large, I don't tend to identify with them very well. I tend to identify much more with black women. And actually, um, you know how Facebook and Instagram, like they have their algorithms and they try to like tailor content to you and things like that. If you go into my Facebook profile to see the kinds of things that I follow and how they target me, they target me based on my interest in African-American and black things, (laughs) (laughs) which is great because, you know, I get, I get things catered to me that I more deeply identify with and that are actually more applicable to me. But it's kind of this like hidden thing that I don't tell people or share with people, um, you know, from the time I was young and able to be like, oh, I'm half black. 
it was a battle of like proving to people that I was half black because I didn't look the way that I should look to be or claim that identity. So I'm trying to figure out now as an adult and in doing decolonization work and anti-racism work and trying to like break all the, these binds of oppression, how do I show up in a way that's responsible, but also true to myself? Um, and I think in a way that takes up space without taking up the wrong space. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell that even means. Um, it's just, yeah, it's this like weird, constant friction for me internally. So when you asked about this, I was like, well, maybe talking this out with someone else who's mixed, but presents more black would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. I actually think it's honestly, uh, and I hate that I have to say this, but like I applaud you for recognizing that you're half black. You know, I feel like you could easily say, no, forget that. I don't need to look at that part of myself because I, I can be white and I can live privileged. You know what I mean? And, and instead you're, you're taking ownership of that part of you. And I think that's, that it deserves recognition. So I, I would like to say that. Um, I would also like to ask how, how did your parents have to do with your identity on a racial level? Did that have any impact or is this just purely personal? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a human alive that can't say that their parents greatly impacted their identity in one way or another. True. But um, they do say that, right? Yeah, no, that's you know? it. That's, it's just a lie. It's just something people tell themselves to make themselves feel better and more in control. But the truth is, when you're an infant, you have absolutely no control and you're just getting downloaded trauma from your ancestors and from your parents in that moment. So you just pick up on all of those things. And then on top of that, as you grow up, your parents are going through their own bullshit. Um, and clearly racism is alive and well now. So, you know, 28 years ago when I was born, still there. Um, and pretty intensely. So I was actually born in Vermont, which as liberal as Vermont is, it's very, very white state. There's just a lot of white people there. Um, my mom grew up in Milton, um, Vermont, which is a tiny little town just outside of Burlington, maybe an hour, which is, I think, Arguably the largest city in Vermont is Burlington, and it's not large at all <laughs> compared to, you know, Austin, Texas, for sure. And she, I think, I want to say her junior year of high school, she had never seen a black person until a black family moved to Milton. And boom, there there was a, a black kid in her class, and that was like the first time she'd ever seen someone who wasn't white. So, I mean, just coming from that, and then she ends up, let's say she's like 16 or 17 at that point in time, then she ends up, you know, in her early 20s, falling in love with and getting pregnant with a black man. So how much time did she have to deal with whiteness and patriarchy and da 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 in that amount of time? Absolutely none. And also she was not aware of it at all. So um, for her, actually, it was very jarring to be thrust into that space because she didn't even really know racism was alive and well because she was living in the white part of the system. And so um, one of the big things that she had to confront was black women being really upset that, you know, another good black man had gone to a white woman. You know, that whole, it sounds stereotypical, but it also does happen, especially in smaller communities, I think. And like I said, Milton's super tiny. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of her first introduction to all of that. And I think all of that animosity coming on her, especially when she didn't understand what she'd done to earn it, if you will, um, made things tough for for her in relationship to really any and all black women. And I also think that um, my biological father's mother's relationship with her kids was really bad. Um, he, she was pretty much just absent. Um, I think that colored her lenses a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then my biological father himself was 
very unwell mentally, emotionally, um, even physically. At one point, he he was a, he's a bodybuilder. Used to be. He's retired now, but he used to be a bodybuilder, and he did a bunch of steroids and he fought dogs and Mm. he skipped out on his kids. You know, he did a lot of very stereotypical things. Um, All that to say, I think when you're a young kid and you're trying to figure out who you are, the parent that leaves is the one that you kind of have to push aside and that part of your identity, you have to kind of quarter off just to survive. And so like right from the get-go, we're talking like I'm like two or three, I'm already having to box out this part of me because Anytime I get close to it, I get hurt, I get burned, I get abandoned. My mom gets yelled at, I get hit, she gets pushed down the stairs, like whatever was happening at the time. Um, So it was easier for me to kind of cling to my mom because she was constant and steady and always there and safe. And so I think that dynamic definitely played a role. And then, um, you know, as I got older, we saw him less and less, communicated with him less and less, and my mom actually got remarried and um, my stepdad ended up legally adopting us. So like even on my birth certificate right now, Tony's name's not on there anymore. It's my stepdad, Ken, who's now my adoptive father on there. And he's like, just like picture an old white bald man. And that's what my dad looks like, you know? So then, you know, then I got swept up into that like whole suburban ideal thing. Um, and I, we have, I do have connections with, um, my father's side of the family through my uncle and my aunt, um, who are amazing, wonderful, beautiful people. Um, so that's, that's been good and nice, but they don't, they didn't live around me. Um, and honestly, my favorite best memories, um, of spending time with them was spending with time with my aunt Didi and with my, um, great grandma Pat. So that's my dad and uncle's grandmother. And that's really the, like the deepest connection that I have to that side of my family, um, and I have really great memories of like my aunt and my great grandma, like teaching me how to like deal with my hair. And my grandma would come and braid my hair and put beads on it every time she came. And, um, or just like talking to me about different, like natural essential oils and scents and things like that comes from that side of the family, you know, now it's super trendy. So it's like, and it's very interesting. Um, I, there's like kind of this full circle thing where my great grandmother had given me this like little bottle of Egyptian musk. She actually lived in, um, in New York. I think she was in Brooklyn and, uh, she used to like go to the markets and things and like buy me little like stuff handmade by like actual like black people or African people or whoever, you know, in a time where black entrepreneurship wasn't really a quote unquote a thing um, or it was, it was a thing that white people didn't recognize at least. And so she would bring me these things and she brought me like a little bottle of Egyptian musk and like let's fast forward now about a decade and a half and my mom is now buying Egyptian musk and wearing it all the time and loves it and I'm just like oh, you know, like grandma Pat got me that and my mom had completely forgotten and Mm. all of the, just, I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. Um, (laughs) I'm just like saying things that are coming up for me. Yeah. About like how I grew up and, and just some disconnects there. But I think the things that were most isolating for me were just the not being connected to my father really at all for survival purposes. Um, little offhand comments, you know, my mom or dad would make that were racially charged in one way or other and not always pointed toward black people just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that like when you watch an indie sitcom that used to be like funny jokes and you watch now and you're totally appalled, those kinds of things. Um, and then probably just, and this is so stupid, but you know, on those school forms where you have to pick your race, yeah. well, they didn't have mixed race or biracial or anything when, you know, you and I were younger. 
And so you would have to choose. And so my mom was like, just choose whatever you want. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And so my brother and I would flip flop back and forth, but the school had a huge problem with that. Um, and I just remember that being like a big, what did they say? You can't be both. You have to pick one. You you can't switch every year. Just, you know, you have to fit into the box that we've created for you. Mm. Um, and so eventually I just gave up and just checked white every time. I just, I just gave up on it. Do they um, see you and your brother differently racially? Yes, that's actually a very interesting, interesting thing. So I can't speak for my brother and, and his racial identity, but what I've picked up on, um, he got bullied a lot when we were younger and called the N-word. So he immediately was identified as black. <laughs> I was immediately identified as white. And so he has much stronger ties and a more solid identity in, you know, the parts of him that are black and does not identify at all as a white man. Like he would never tell you that because of the way he looks or because of the way he was treated or both. I think it's both. Um, he definitely doesn't look like a white man. You know, he looks pretty ethnically ambiguous. Agreed. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. very ethnically ambiguous. Yeah. Um, so he could really pull off almost anything. All that to say, um, I think how he feels and how he looks play a role. And I think first it was just how he looked, you know, he was a, you know, a kid with a big fro head and he just got picked on all the time um and just and this was in vermont that he got picked on or was no this, we this were living here, we were living in texas by, yeah. by then yeah we we left the north when i was about like six or seven so we, <laughs> we left the north we left. <laughs> uh yeah we moved down to um the houston area okay when i was in, in i think first or second grade so um we pretty much just grew up in texas yeah yeah, so it wasn't a small town, and in Houston, actually, is an extremely demographically diverse city. Yeah, <laughs> we just got stuck next to a bunch of rednecks. I mean, honestly, yeah. um, it was very, very white people, and they thought it was fun to call me N word and beat him up. Did that? How did that affect your relationship with him? Um, and how did your mom navigate that? Those are two really different questions. So. Yeah. Well, one, I'll say, my mom was not aware. My, you know, my brother didn't share that. Um, but you knew. Um, I think I, you know, I was cursorily aware, but he was definitely keeping things pretty close to the vest. I didn't understand the extent to which, like, you know, I kind of would see it happen when we were playing like out on the street and stuff, like with the neighborhood kids. Um, but it was also happening like in the locker room and in between classes in the hallway and, you know, things like that, where I just wouldn't have been privy to it because I was off somewhere else doing my own school thing. Right. Um, yeah, I think my brother tried to bring it up to my mom and it just, you know, it just didn't, it just didn't happen. The conversation didn't happen, at least in a way that I think she fully understood what was happening. Um, and again, that's my, that's just my experience of it. This is not something that we've talked about as a family really at all is like, hey, how did growing up affect our identities? Like we haven't had that conversation. Um, my brother and I a little bit have. But I, it's, again, it's just something I've been struggling with so much. And I've this is the first time in any kind of public forum that I'm like really claiming this at all. So I haven't really had a conversation where I've been like, hey, I'm really struggling with this thing. And how do you identify? And all of yeah. that, all of that. But, you know, now that we're talking about this, I'm just thinking how cleansing and healing that might be. And yeah, just the closeness. Like he and I are, are very close. So then, you know, continuing to bridge and build that and feel like we have some sense of roots and like we belong somewhere would be excellent. 
Well, you can build that sense of belonging for yourself, which right, is right. which is where it gets super empowering and and where you maybe build something for someone else. You know, you I don't know. I always say that I try to be who I needed when I was younger, you know? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that there's, there's something altruistic there, which I think suits you and your personality. Mm. So anyway, um, okay. So what's the biggest, I mean, you're processing out loud, which is right. pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. To me. <laughs> what's the biggest piece of your struggle? Like what's, can you, can you highlight, I mean, cause it, struggle is so, it's so loaded. Like there's right. so much there, but if you could highlight what you feel so strongly, what can you, can you say that with words? Yeah. Um, I think I can speak to parts of it again. Like I've only been consciously working on this for like six, seven months. So, um, I'm sure there's much more to be unearthed, but what's popping up initially, there's kind of two parts to it. One, um, you have some sense of the work that I'm trying to do here in the world, but just as like a high level overview, I want to give people tools and resources to figure out who they are, why they're here, and then how to actually make that happen. And to do that, I have to dig into and give people space and a container to be extremely vulnerable. And when you start getting into those spaces, the chance of harm or, you know, like me phrasing a sentence in a way that's privileged and a little bit irresponsible could be super damaging to somebody. And so on one hand, I'm very nervous to be just another white lady contributing to the bullshit and oppression and the system. And that's been really me struggling with the, okay, you do look like a white lady and you do have those privileges and you have walked through the world this way. So how can you be the white lady and also be the black lady who gets it? Like, how can you be both those things? So I've been struggling with that. And then also, I, th- I think because so much of the black experience in media is depicted as painful and my life, you know, some people have been like, Oh, that it was really painful, you know, whatever to me and my perspective, it just wasn't, I'm here. I'm strong. I'm really well. I have an amazing relationship. I own a house. Like my life is very beautiful. And so I'm also struggling with some of that conditioning that being black means it has to be really tough and really hard and filled with a lot of pain and hate and anger and, you know, all of those things that get depicted. I mean, we mostly see black bodies associated with violence. And a lot of the time it's violence being done to them, but we've somehow warped it to be that black people are violent. So I just, it's like these two things where I'm like, I haven't been harmed enough, but also I don't want to do any harm. So there's like these weird conflicting conditioning thoughts that I'm just like, like I told you, there's this, this constant tension for me. That's well said. I love what you said about the violence piece. It's, Yeah. Now you're an adult living your life. How does how does how you see yourself as you try to figure that out <laughs> speak to what you do in your life? Um, I, well, so a huge part of what I do is just help people get to know themselves. Um, and that's because I've been so focused and on this journey too. And so I've picked up some things and learned some things. And so I think the deeper I get into this and the more I get into this, the greater my compassion for myself becomes. Um like the fact I'm even having this conversation with you is like huge for me because if you had approached me two years ago, I would have been like, no, nope. I I have no right to have this conversation with you. I can't be on a show called mixed feelings. I'm not mixed, you know, (laughs) like I would have done that whole thing. And so as I'm talking and, and not really, I don't really have a point necessarily. (laughs) Um, I'm feeling a lot of compassion for myself, which I think is really important when you're teaching other people how to be with themselves and learn about themselves and 
dig into all of those things. And so I think ultimately what I'm hoping all of this does for me and how I see myself and then translates into the work that I do is that you can be held and be the holder all at one time. So you can hold yourself and be held and be in that compassion and be in that knowing and do this really tough, hard work that nobody tells you or explains how to do. Hopefully I'm changing that. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those things are possible and you don't need permission. You inherently are here and born and you, you have permission to do whatever you want just by virtue of being alive. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that I'm starting to embody those things um, and that that will then translate into my message that my identity will just inherently be the message. Um, So I guess to put it very neatly, walking the talk, you know, being the change, being the example, leading by example. I think that's probably, that's what I hope's happening at least. I'm in the middle of all of this, so it's a little bit of a whirlwind, but that's my ultimate hope. How did you get to now? Like you're, you're in the whirlwind, you're, you're, um, you're boldly questioning and processing and like asking yourself questions that are difficult to answer and you know, you're kind of like opening yourself up to some struggle and confusion, all those things that a lot of people in their lifetime don't ever look at, right? right. So how did you get to that? What did, what did it take? What, what comes to me when you say that is, one, my growing up, like there was just constant change. Things were always changing. Um, and without throwing my family's baggage out there, I just had to adapt as a kid and try to create my own sense of stability. And a huge part of that was, one, you know, being a little rigid and structured in certain things, but then in other things, being very open-minded and very curious all the time. Um, like I said, I, you know, I read a lot. I was a huge voracious reader. Um, I was a very self-motivated learner. So I would study things all the time just because I wanted to, they would have nothing to do with anything else. Um, and then, you know, once Google became just like the thing you did, I was on that shit all the time. Just, Oh wait, how does this work? And what does this do? And then that would like lead me down, these roads. So then when I got exposed to, um, you know, psychometric assessments like StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs, any of those ones that you can think of where you can kind of self-assess, I just went crazy because I was like, oh my God, I didn't know all these things about myself. What else don't I know about myself? And so then I just started to ask a lot of questions. Um, and you know, the more questions I got and the more willing I became to explore those and and no, there might not be an answer, but this could lead me to another very intriguing question I might want to explore. The more I did that, the easier it became to be in discomfort. What is your Myers-Briggs? Um, I think it's E-N-F-J. Okay. And the E is like very slightly an E. Okay. Yeah, I'm on yeah. the cusp of being an I. And depending on, like if I took it today, I might be an I. Right. Because I've been so flat lately, right. but um, I took that on a more social day. <laughs> but the NFJ pretty much stays the same. Yeah. And then have you done the Enneagram? I have. Um, I think seven is my main one. Seven is my main number, which, which is, which I think is that's that? the enthusiasm Okay. Number. Yeah. My um, sister is that. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. I'm the four. Oh, which one's Bless. that? like the romantic one the one that's like super artistic oh I love that in their feelings all the time and like existential and yeah I I actually first listened to the podcast and my friend so I I did the panel the one that was in March Mm -hmm. last month I guess um feels so long ago and I had taken the test like a couple years ago just for fun and I was like eh 
I don't think that's me. It was the it was number eight, I think, right. which I think I pre- might present that way to people sometimes. But um, but she was talking about the Enneagram and how it helped her in her business life. Like it helped her understand how her brain works and also like how other people work and and that the way they work isn't wrong or the way she works isn't wrong. It's just different. Right. Um, and so, you know, she really inspired me to go check this out. Everyone was like, oh, man, I need to revisit this Enneagram thing. And so I like I talked to her about it. She was like, just listen to the podcast and whichever one makes you emotional on any level, it's probably the one you are. And so I listened to the first few. I listened to the eight again. I was like, oh my gosh, this doesn't resonate at all. Um, and then like the fifth episode or something was, was the number four. And I was taking notes. I was like, I teared up. Like it was this whole experience where I just... I mean, I related so much to this guy. It was like a musician, a man, mm. and everything that was said. One of there was a quote that was said uh, by the, the one of the podcast hosts, and he said, um, "I've never had a feeling, I I've never had a feeling I didn't want to change." And I was like, okay, well, that's me. No, I love that though. And I actually <laughs> want to touch on that eight thing because the same thing happened to me. I took it and I got an eight. I could I totally not, see that. And I just yeah. didn't resonate with it. I saw it. I was like, you know, that's the armor I put on. I feel like that people would see me that way, especially in a work setting. Yeah. All right, let's soften. Let's take some armor off and retake this. And then that's when the seven came up. And that was the one that felt more true to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think about that sometimes. Uh, and I always wonder, is that eight showing up when I feel like, I need to be performative when I feel like I need to be more in, uh, you know, a masculine space, like more like to do lists and get things done and blah, blah, blah. And like less in a soft, vulnerable, vulnerable state. And I feel like that might be true for me. And I wonder if when you took it, you were showing up like, yeah, I have to perform and answer correctly. And it's not on purpose. It just kind of happens where you're like, I'm taking a test. Doop, 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 doop. This is how you should answer. This is how right. you should answer. So true. Yeah. I definitely, because going back to um, the eight, I think it's the challenger. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like, and not to use, I mean, we're using the Enneagram because it, it's simple and they're what, eight or nine, you know, it's yeah, I think easy, there's like nine right? of them or yeah. something. It's simple. Um, but do you feel like you present that way sometimes because of the way you look and therefore going back to identity, the way you're perceived? For me, I'm tall and I'm, I, I'm, you know, I've got some curves and I've got big hair. And, and so hair. I've got to like match it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I can't be a, a, a fly on the wall, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes a lot of sense. And actually I've been dealing with this a lot in my sexual identity um, lately, mostly Mostly just sexuality in general, sensuality, like feeling that way about myself and seeing myself in that way. You know, you did my boudoir photo shoot for me on my birthday and that that was a huge part of, okay, I want to see myself in this way that isn't like this, you know, thick, solid brick wall woman because that's how I feel like I have to be. Um, And what I'm learning is I actually am much more comfortable being a lot softer and a lot more quiet and more introspective and less external and I I do think that that has a large role to play is if you don't look like you need to be taken care of then you're off on your own and nobody has to like do anything Mm -hmm. for you but we all need to be taken care of sometimes in one way or another and so I'm trying to like figure that out okay who can I trust to take care of me who who gets to see that side of me all of that stuff and just even me acknowledging that that part exists that there is a part of me that yes I I'm a strong, independent woman and I can go off and do all these things and I do go off and do all these things, but sometimes 
I don't want to do crap. I want someone to take care of me. I want someone to like hold space for me. I don't want to be holding space all the time, blah, blah, blah. So I, I do think I'm slowly embracing the seven, like slowly getting there and being like, it's okay to be like fun and enthusiastic about stuff and a little head in the clouds and maybe a little like two into sparkles and glitter. Like that's okay, you know? Yeah. So you talked about the algorithm. You talked about social media yeah. <laughs> and how it perceives what you what you like. Right. And it sounds like it perceives that you like, that you like, that you're attracted to, that you are black. Right. Right. And yep. so where do you feel comfortable in real life? Who do you feel comfortable around? Is there a specific demographic or is it everyone? I think I feel comfortable with everyone. Um, I was definitely that person in school that had like 700 friend groups because everybody's interesting and everybody has something to contribute. And that's been beautiful for me because I've learned about so many different cultures that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Um, You know, you hear, you're, you're a storyteller, you know, like it's beautiful to hear someone's story and it creates so much empathy and so much connection and you just realize how different we are not. (laughs) We are all so freaking similar. You know, it's just a different language or a different ritual or a different religion or whatever that affected our lives, but we're all so similar. Um, So I tend to feel comfortable with everyone barring people who present as very fratty. I do get uncomfortable around that group of people. Um, You know, I won't discount anyone for it. I'll, y'all be open to the interaction, but that would be like a space that I might walk away from Mm -hmm. um, at first if I was feeling uncomfortable. And how do you sort of, do you feel like you have to morph around different groups of people or do you feel like you're just you all the time? So I used to definitely morph. That was actually one of the ways that I just survived childhood. I could, I am pretty empathic. Like I can pretty much pick up on how people are feeling and, and what will make them feel good about their interaction with me. And so I used that to be accepted places Um, I don't do that so much anymore, mostly because I don't have to, because I've learned other tools to, you know, survive and get through. What are the tools? Um, Honestly, curiosity has become my new best friend. I just ask a lot of questions that I genuinely want the answer to. Um, That's been super helpful because, again, once you hear someone's story, you can get past the fact that they're wearing a popped collar and pink shorts and boat shoes, right? Um, You can go, oh, there's a real human underneath that facade of, like, drinking 10,000 beers a day, you know? Um, so a lot of questions and then also just recognizing that their response to me is about them. And so then seeing that and recognizing, Ooh, there's some pain attached to that or Ooh, there's some nasty story there going on or Ooh, I wonder why they feel that way about themselves. If they say something to me, that's less than flattering. I'm like, Ooh, that's a projection. There's a part of them that they feel that way about. And I wonder why, you know, just being in that kind of space. And a huge part of that is because, you know, I'm a professional coach, so you learn how to do that with people and to not take their crap personally because it's just not, it's, it's fully about them. Not that I, not that I'm innocent and have never done anything to incite someone's darker sides. Certainly I have. Um, but the way that they respond and the specific words that they use have more to do with them than they do me. And so just recognizing that has been super helpful too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about your work? How is it relative to you and to your impact the kind of impact you want to have on the world. Yeah, actually, this is really great. So I just spent a week at a devotional leadership program with a woman named Nisha Moodley, who is absolutely fantastic, just one of the best human beings of all time. 
And we had to do, we had a whole day where we um, had to kind of dig into our own stories and what came out was just very interesting for me. So maybe I'll share that. And I think that lays a bedrock for what I'm hoping people feel um, and what I can hope to do in the world. So when I was, I want to say I was eight, we used to have these things at school called Wednesday folders. Um, and they had a big horse on them because our mascot was a cult. <laughs> and so you would go pick up your Wednesday folder with your name and your horse on it. And then you would pick up all of your homework and tests and quizzes for that week. And you'd see all your grades. Well, up to this point, I had been a straight A student and had no plans to be anything but a straight A student until I died. Right. That was like, yeah, if Liv has straight A's, she's good. <laughs> so I go and I pick up all my papers. Well, this is at a point in time where the state of Texas made B's. Um, anything less than a 93. So if you had a 93, you had an A. If you had a 92, you had a B. Is that weird? Like, why did you do it at 92 and not 90? It was like that for a couple years when I went to school there. Um, so I get, I get a history test back and it has a 92 on it. And I just freaked out. Like, I didn't know what to do. My whole identity, like the girl who gets all the A's was just completely wiped out forever. Like there was no going back. I just bawled. Um, and I bawled the whole way on the bus and I got home and um, you know, my mom's like, oh my God, what happened to you? And I'm like, I gotta be, oh my God. You know, and I can hold it up and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm just like profusely, you know, apologizing. So my mom like kind of is laughing because here's this eight-year-old girl taking life way too seriously, like way too seriously. I was still going to get an A in the class. It was just like one test, right? Um, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't old enough to have the tools to go, oh, she's laughing because of her perspective. I thought she was laughing at me. And so everything she said after that just went right over my head. I don't even remember what she said. I'm sure it was something like, you're okay. I still love you. You're fine. Bees are okay. You know, did you do your best? If this was your best, then that's okay. You know, I'm sure she said something to that effect, but I didn't hear shit. And from that point on, I just have this distinct memory of being very guarded and like doing things to like, oh, that part of me is not good. Okay, put this away, lock this away, don't ever touch it again. And just like slowly fragmenting and breaking myself into all of these little tiny pieces with the hope that one day I'd be broken enough, I'd be good. I would feel complete. I would have arrived, whatever the that is. I don't even know. I just had this like warped thing of like, if I figure out how to be the thing, then whoop, boom, I'll be perfect and everyone will love me and I will feel love. Well, um, that day never came. I know everyone's super surprised. I did not find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Instead, I landed in a place where I was extremely depressed. I was binge drinking like it was my day job. I actually hated my day job. Um, I had gone through a breakup with my best friend of well over a decade. We grew up together. We were, she had a fucked up family life. I had a fucked up family life. We kind of survived it together. And we just, you know, you know, we, you just, we grew apart and we didn't necessarily recognize that's what was happening or that we were even breaking up because we don't put that kind of weight on friendships. But my heart was broken into 10,000 pieces. I'm sure hers was too. Um, I was just in a really bad spot. And one night I got way too drunk. And the friend I was with didn't realize how drunk I was because at that point I had gotten really good at masking it and I drove home and I don't remember the drive, but I ended up calling Jesse while I was driving. Um, and so he like can recount this for you, but he was freaking terrified. And so then the next morning when I woke up, you know, he shared all of that with me and I could just sense the fear. And it was the first time he ever suggested that maybe I had a problem and I should do something about that. And that just that was rock bottom for me. Um, How recent was this? I was in college. I want to say I was 21. 
Um, so seven years ago, seven years ago now. Um, yeah, he, yeah, I I felt awful about how I had affected him. And then also my, my, um, best friend and she'd been my friend through high school and things. Her, um, father died in a drunk driving accident. Mm. And so as soon as I was like, Oh my God, I could have, that could have been me. I could have killed someone's dad. Mm -hmm. I could have fucking killed my best friend's dad just now. That was, that was it. That's all I needed. I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to do something different because what I've been doing since I was eight and got a B is not working. I'm in a dump right now and I hate my life and I hate myself. Like I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you're ugly. And I didn't mean that aesthetically, even though I did not feel good about my body. It was like you to your core ugly, right? So, you know, from that point, I was just kind of like, all right, change this, change that, change this. I was just like changing all kinds of things. And what I've come to realize is that that story is not unique. Everybody has a version of that where they broke themselves into 10,000 pieces to try to be someone they're not. And then they hit a point where they realize what they've done and they need to do something different. For some people, it's in their early 20s if they're lucky. For a lot of people, it's when they're in their 40s or their 50s. That's what a midlife crisis is. That's when you get there and go, who the hell am I? I don't even recognize myself. I don't recognize my life. I don't like how I feel. I don't like who I'm with. And they blow their whole life up and start changing all these things. And so I just had this realization, like, what if I can give what I know to people now? Like, now I don't feel broken. I don't feel fragmented. I feel as whole as I can in this moment. And tomorrow I will feel even more whole. And the next day I will feel even more whole. It's just going to be a continual process of reintegrating and coming back into myself. And so I was like, if I can give this to, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, if I can give this to people my age, maybe we don't have to do the whole 40, 50, blow your life up and hate yourself. Maybe we don't have to have so much violence. Maybe we don't have to have so much suicide. Maybe we don't have to like kill people to feel empowered. Maybe there's a different way to be whole without continually breaking yourself into 700 pieces. Um, So that's ultimately what motivated me to even start doing what I do, which the platform's called Self-Aware Millennial. And that's all. I just want people to start becoming self-aware. One, because that's the first step. That's the key to unlock all the doors. And then from there, your whole world opens up when you are just me having the realization of, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? I, I don't like what I'm doing. Why am I doing it? Having that is so huge. And I just don't think we should have to wait until tragedy, trauma, or midlife hits us to figure those things out. I think that's unfair and it's a waste of time. And I think everybody deserves better than that. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. In many ways, it sounds like you're, you're helping people take ownership over Mm -hmm. their life and, and their choices, Mm -hmm. you know, because ultimately, I don't know. I think your life is composed of experiences for sure. And many of them are dictated by the decisions you make. Right. So, um, so yeah, it sounds like a very active practice, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Very. It's alive and well, and it will never die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It only gets more and more robust and dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about your hair? Can you talk about your hair? Yes. Let's talk about my hair. (laughs) So, um, I have very curly hair and it's, it's, it can be big. Um, all that to say growing up, my, my mom has pretty curly hair, but we have completely different textures and curl patterns because she's Italian and Armenian and I'm Nigerian, Armenian and Italian. So my curls are a lot tighter and more spirally. And she just, 
she didn't know what to do with them. To be fair, her mother didn't know what to do with her curls either either because my grandma has like bone straight hair. Um, So it was just like this deal with it kind of thing growing up. So I'm really good at French braiding my hair and straightening my hair. Um, But maybe this was two years ago. So I dyed my hair gray or white or whatever white blonde like Danny Targaryen from Game of Thrones that's that was the color it was and I had it like that for three years and that was a fun time but I I just had gotten to this space in my growth where I was like okay it's time to strip off all these layers of personas you've tried on and just go back to what you were originally which is bare face I don't have any makeup on which I used to be very heavy into makeup um you know wearing my hair a little naturally more often um just that kind of like natural Alicia Keys kind of vibe. She's actually part of what inspired me to do it. <laughs> um, love her. All that to say, I had a pixie haircut and it was bleached blonde. And so I just thought, here's a great opportunity to just start from scratch and grow my hair out completely curly. No straightening, no chemicals, no nothing on it. No relaxers, nothing. So I did. I just grew my hair out and let it be curly. And I I leaned on Instagram and YouTube and all the amazing beauty bloggers out there who, you know, show you how to do your hair and like naturallycurly.com, which is a fucking sensation. And, um, was there, were there growing pains there? Oh my God. Was there an awkward stage? Oh yes. How did you get through that? I just, I just would look at myself and be like, you know what, how you look right now doesn't matter. How you look right now doesn't matter. We'll get to that next. We'll learn to love how you look next. Just grow your hair out, just grow your hair out. It was just like a constant conversation. And I actually, um, I have tended to not be a very patient person. So I actually, I have one of my tattoos, the one here on my arm with Father Time. It's just a reminder. Um, It's based on that Earl Nightingale quote, um, never give up on your dreams for the amount of time it will take to get there. The time Mm. will pass anyway. Mm. So it's just a reminder like, okay, this is what your hair looks like today. But this time next year, you're going to look in the mirror and be like, damn, bitch, you did it. (laughs) And like, here we are now. And there's still days where I'm like, oh, I want it to be longer, faster. But now it looks good and I feel good about it. And it's a part of myself that I've totally reclaimed that feels just so freaking good. Um, And I think it was important for me to do that. Now, I still will straighten my hair from time to time. You know, I did the full year of not doing it at all, which was great for my hair. So much healthier. Um, And it had been God, since I was 12, that so over a decade that I had been applying heat damage to my hair constantly or chemicals of one sort or other. So I'm really glad I took the break. And now when I straighten my hair, it's just a choice of, do I feel like being a little bit like softer and girlier? Great. Then I'll straighten my hair because you can do like 10 million different things with it that are cutesy. And then if I'm feeling like a little more powerful or a little more like I want to be seen or noticed, I'll wear my hair curly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you put those labels on it because... They're yours, you right. know? Yeah. And I feel like... And it's about how I feel, right? Yeah. And yeah. sometimes there's judgment in now in like embracing the natural or going straight or whatever. And it's like, this is just how I feel right now. And it's yeah. my hair. Yeah. And I can do whatever I want with it, you know? Because yeah. I've definitely been told, oh, I like it curly. You know, why did you straighten it? You don't mm. need to straighten it. Or people don't... Oftentimes people don't even recognize me when I straighten it, you yeah. know? Because people are so used to identifying me as, you know, the girl with the big hair. You know what I mean? <laughs> but there's, and so then there's something empowering about straightening it. Cause it's like, no, I'm Riley. <laughs> like I'm just me. Like I'm, I'm not defined by my hair. You know, it's, it's a constant, um, it's a constant battle though, because I, I sometimes don't feel like me when my hair is straight, you right. know, like there's like this, it's like I'm in costume, mm-hmm. you know? Um, do you have any connection to your biological father? presently I 
very cursorily, I reached out. So my, my brother has actually met with him, you know, as an adult and they've had some conversations didn't go very well. So they don't have, you know, what I would call an active relationship. It's more of like an acquaintance thing. And my brother has no problem, you know, messaging him when he needs to. All that to say, um, I texted him. I got my number from, or got uh, Tony's number from my brother, uh, I think in 2015, so about four years ago. And I, I texted him just out of pure curiosity. Um, and at first it was like interesting and then it became too overwhelming for me because he started texting me like on a regular basis and that's not really what I was looking for. So I had to tell him like, Hey, I'll let you know when and if I'm ready to have like a conversation where we can talk back, back and forth. And he said, he said, okay, I'm here. I'm consistent, which was just a mind fuck for me because I was like, you were consistently absent. Is that what you mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean you're consistent? Okay. Um, and then, and then when I was 18, I was on the rowing team at the university of Oklahoma and he had put together, made a photo album. And, um, I guess he Googled me and found me on the OU website and he mailed this thing to my coach, which was just super embarrassing after practice. (laughs) He was like, someone sent you a package. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, Oh God, I'm so sorry. So I took it and I open it and it's my biological father. There's like a card and it says, I'm not sure what to say. Let's chat Tony. Which I was like, you put a lot of work and heart and soul into that. Thanks man. And then I open it and it's just like pictures of him with like his bodybuilding clients and his new family, like his girlfriend. And I don't, I don't think they're together anymore, but his girlfriend at the time and, and her kids. And I was like, what are you showing me? Like, what, what is this? But, um, you know, I, like I said, I have a good relationship with my uncle. So I called my uncle and I was like, what the hell is this book? What do I do with it? Can I just give it to you? And he was coming to a regatta that was in Tennessee because that's where they live. So he's like, yeah, just bring it to Tennessee. I'll take it from you. He doesn't know how to relate to people outside of talking about himself. This is a weak ass attempt for him, blah, 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 that stuff. So that's really the only connections I've had with him as an adult. However, his mother, Losa, called me, over a year ago wanting to connect um and I just wasn't ready to do it and she passed away I want to say like three or four months ago and so now I don't have the opportunity to do it at all and that affected me very deeply like I I felt a very deep deep sadness that it just wasn't even on the table anymore um so now I'm like if I felt that way about Losa who I really had no memory or connection to at all how am I going to feel if Tony passes and I haven't at least had an actual conversation with him. Um, so I don't, but I, I feel that it's on the horizon and I don't know that it'll be a relationship, but I definitely want there to be some kind of door open there. Um, because it, he is part of me, you know, he's part of where I came from and all of his good and bad. If I can't hold that for him, there's no way in hell I'm going to hold it for myself or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. And I would love to hear his side of things, you know, because I just, I've only heard my mom and my mom has done such a beautiful job of not blaming him for anything and of putting everything in context, which is great. So I don't, you know, I don't see him as this big nasty man. I see him a lot as a victim of circumstance, but at the same time you have to, at some point you have to be responsible for your own actions. Um, so I'm also trying to figure that out. Like, where's that line of, he grew up in a really fucked up, broken system and, He's done actually very well for himself given that. And he hurt me and it's okay for me to say that. It's okay for me to claim that. And it's okay for me to tell him, hey, your behavior hurt me. It was impactful in my life in these ways. Not okay. You know, 
Yeah. Being compassionate, but also holding boundaries. Yeah. It's such a tough line. Yeah. No mm-hmm. kidding. But you're, you're finding it. Yeah. I'm, I'm figuring it out. So I probably sometime this year, I'll get a hair across my ass and be like, all right, reaching out to Tony, just going to rip the bandaid off and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hate that term. <laughs> Cause it's like, good for you. I don't care. No, I mean it like the way like, you said it was compassionate. Okay, I felt good. It. Yeah. I, felt I mean it. it like I'm, I feel for you and I'm, you know, I, I don't know if glad is the right word, but it excites me that that is something that you want to, you know, explore. I think that shows that there's a level of forgiveness and, um, and imagination and hope and yeah, positivity, which is pretty impressive. All things considered. Do you have a tattoo that are, are, is any one tattoo more meaningful than another? Is there like, this is the most meaningful tattoo or are they all, is it just like a painting? You can't pull one apart. Cause you, you spoke to the, and I, it really hit me. The time will pass anyway. Yeah. Uh, I am obsessed with time and just the fact that it's, it's uncontrollable. It's ever, it's ever passing. You can't do, you can't do anything about it. No, no control. No, no, I have no say. I can't, you know, like we're all, we're all hopeless in the matter. And I just find that so fascinating and terrifying and exciting and everything all at once. All the sensations. So (laughs) I was really into that one, but I'm curious if just because your tattoos are so incredible, if, thank you, if there's anything more you can say about them. Yeah. So I think I think they're all deeply meaningful to me in one way or other, whether it's because I was inspired to get it because of a message I wanted to remind myself of, or because I just really thought it was beautiful and I wanted it on my body. (laughs) Either one has like deep meaning to me, but I think the one that encompasses me the best is the one that's on my chest and it just says, know thyself. And it has a couple of different meanings to me. One, actually it was something that my mom said to me. We were, I was, I think I was 24 at the time. Um, and we were just having a conversation and we were talking about intentions and it was really the first time I was purposely mindfully playing with intentions and starting to get super clear on mine and starting to like express them out loud to people so I could start manifesting things. And I was like, you know, mom, how do you, cause my mom's an amazing manifester. Like she pretty much says something's going to happen. And then like two months later it materializes. <laughs> so I'm like, mom, how do you do that? Like, what do you do to like shift these things? And so she said, one of the first things she ever started doing was she would wear it on her heart. So she would write it on a piece of paper and then put it in the her left um, pocket on whatever shirt she had on or jacket she had on or, you know, like she just shoved it in her bra, whatever she needed to do so that it was like on her heart. And I took that very literally and got it tattooed on my chest. <laughs> I was like, oh, I can do that. You know, then I went and got it because I already, you know, already had like a giant back piece and, you know, so tattoos were not new to me at all. Um, so... I think that one is the most like all encompassing the know thyself one. Um, it's also my maiden family crest. So my mom's maiden name is Thompson and the, mm. the motto for Thompson is know thyself. Um, so it's, it's got ancestral ancestral roots, which feels really good. Um, and it's got just a personal meaning to me. And it also obviously ties into my mission in the world because that's the journey I want to get everybody on is the know thyself journey. Um, it's a never ending philosophical loop 
that is beautiful and fun and super curious and full of so many interesting, wonderful, amazing, unexpected things that I just, yeah, I feel like that one's maybe the one that I'm like, okay, if I have to rank them, this might be number one. All that to say, um, most people don't get to see my bag tattoo because it's so ginormous. You know, you can see pieces of it here and there depending on the shirt I'm wearing. But that one is a huge depiction of that time that I was telling you about where I was just not in a good space and life was just pressing in on me pretty intensely. Um, so I have a fondness for that one. One, it's absolutely gorgeous. The artist is amazing. Her name's Mo Malone and she's phenomenal. Um, so the art is just gorgeous in and of itself. And then there's just so many layers and meanings to it. And it came to me actually through a song uh, uh, Florence and the Machine. Mm-hmm. She's got a song on her first album called Howl. And for some reason, that song just, and I think part of it is the wildness of it. She's acknowledging like the wildness inside of all of us, which I think when you grow up being a perfectionist, all you ever want to do is be wild. <laughs> like you're just like, oh, when can I take these shackles off and just be me? When can I just stomp on the floor and scream and let my hair be frizzy and like all those things? And so um, it came to me through that. And then, you know, through Mo and her beautiful artistry, I have this like really gorgeous um, back tattoo. And then the other artist, I do want to name her because she's so excellent. And I've come up with so many random images in meditation and she actually makes them turn into something. Um, her name's Annie Alonzi and she's actually still here in Austin at oh, Triple cool. Crown Tattoo. And she is, she did the Know Thyself tattoo. The time will pass anyway. All the ones that are very visible on me are the ones that she did. Yeah. I'll have lots to put in the show notes from this one. Yeah. <laughs> which is like really exciting. Yeah. Like quotes and songs and tattoo people. And yeah, it's awesome. Um, okay. So if I gave you two words, uh, I'm going to tell them, I promise. I'm not going to just like have you make them up and asked you to fill out the rest. Mm. It can be um, one sentence, three sentences, but likely it'll be like a shorter synopsis. Um, what would you say? And the words are, I am. I am here. <laughs> That's it. I'm here. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at Woke Beauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at WokeBeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Oh.